Today is May 4th, 2022. May the 4th be with you. The date was chosen as a pun on the franchise's catchphrase in Star Wars. May the Force be with you. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key and my colleague is Joe King. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how Facebook, Google, Amazon, and other big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is www.pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. That's www.prn.live. That's L-I-V-E, prn.live. Streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. I'm eagerly looking forward to returning into the studio for live calls from you, the listening audience. In the meantime, you can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. The EU Commission sends statement of objections to Apple over practices regarding Apple Pay. The European Commission has informed Apple of its preliminary view that it abused its dominant position in markets for mobile wallets on iOS devices by limiting access to a standard technology used for contactless payments with mobile devices in stores, meaning the Near Field Communications, or Tap and Go. Apple restricts competition in the mobile wallets market on iOS. The commission takes issue with the decision by Apple to prevent mobile wallets app developers from accessing the necessary hardware and software on its devices to the benefits of its own solution, Apple Pay. Executive Vice President of EU in charge of competition policy said mobile payments play a rapidly growing role in our digital economy. It is important for the integration of European payments markets that consumers benefit from a competitive and innovative payments landscape. We have indications that Apple restricted third-party access to key technology necessary to develop rival mobile wallet solutions on Apple devices. In our statement of objections, we preliminary found that Apple may have restricted competition to the benefits of its own solution, Apple Pay. If confirmed, such a contact will be illegal under our competition rules. Apple Pay is Apple's own mobile wallet solution on iPhones and iPads used to enable mobile payments in physical stores and online. Apple iPhones and iPads and software form a close ecosystem. Apple controls every aspect of user experience in this ecosystem, including mobile wallet developers' access to it. The commission preliminary considers that Apple enjoys significant market power in the market for smart mobile devices and a dominant position on mobile wallet markets. In particular, Apple Pay is the only mobile wallet solution that may access the necessary NFC or near-field communication input on iOS. Apple does not make it available to third-party app developers of mobile wallets. The NFC tap-and-go technology is embedded on Apple mobile devices for payments in stores. This technology enables communication between a mobile phone and payments terminal in stores. NFC is standardized, 
available in almost all payment terminals and stores and allows for the safest and most seamless mobile payments. Compared to other solutions, NFC offers a more seamless and more secure payment experience and enjoys wider acceptance in Europe. The Commission's preliminary view is that Apple's dominant position in the market for mobile wallets on its operating system, iOS, restricts competition by reserving access to NFC technology to Apple Pay. This has an exclusionary effect on competitors and leads to less innovation and less choice for consumers for mobile wallets on iPhones. If confirmed, this conduct would infringe Article 102 of the Treaty on the Functioning of European Union that prohibits the abuse of a dominant market position. The sending of a statement of objections does not prejudge the outcome of an investigation. The statement of objections takes issue only with the access to NFC input by third-party developers of mobile wallets for payments in stores. It does not take issue with the online restrictions nor the alleged refusals of access to Apple Pay for specific products of rivals that the Commission announced that it had concerns when it opened the in-depth investigation into Apple's practices regarding Apple Pay on the 16th of June in 2020. Article 102 of TFEU prohibits the abuse of a dominant position. The implementation of these provisions is defined in the antitrust regulation, which can also be applied by the national competition authorities. A statement of objections is a formal step in commission investigations into suspected violations of EU antitrust rules. The commission informs the parties concerned in writing of the objections raised against them. The addressees can examine the documents in the commission's investigation file, reply in writing, and request an oral hearing to present their comments on the case before representatives of the commission and national competition authorities. Sending a statement of objections and opening of a formal antitrust investigation does not prejudge the outcome of the investigation. Apple said that Apple Pay is only one of many options available to European consumers for making payments and has ensured equal access to NFC while setting industry-leading standards for privacy and security. And this is true. Other companies such as PayPal and Starbucks have relied on QR codes for mobile payments on the iPhone. Usually, people show a QR code on their phone and store employees scan that code. Some mobile wallets, such as WeChat, Pay, and Alipay, have even thrived with the use of QR codes. But it has been an uphill battle, as paying with Apple Pay remains more seamless for the end customers. There is no legal deadline for bringing an antitrust investigation to an end, The duration of an antitrust investigation depends on a number of factors, including the complexity of the case, the extent to which the undertakings concerned cooperate with the Commission and the exercise of the rights of defense. The European Union move could pave the way for multi-billion euro fines and an order to change how Apple does business. But the company will have the chance to contest the EU's findings in writing and at a hearing. Following their statement of objections, Apple now has the opportunity to respond to the charges. The company can send written answers or ask for an oral hearing. Apple risks a hefty fine if the commission comes to the conclusion that Apple has breached antitrust rules.
Russia has confirmed it will pull out of the International Space Station perhaps as soon as two years from now because of the sanctions imposed on it after its invasion of Ukraine, according to news reports. The decision had already been made. We are not obliged to talk about it publicly, Dmitry Rozogin, the Director General of the Federal Roscosmos Space Agency, told the state-owned TV channel on Saturday, according to the independent Russian news agency TASS. Rogozin didn't say when Russia's involvement in the ISS project will come to an end, although he affirmed it would give at least a year's notice in accordance with the obligations. Russian space analysts have already noted that Russia never agreed to extend its involvement in the ISS beyond 2024. The U.S. Space Agency, NASA, and the other international partners now want the project extended to at least 2030. Rogozin, an experienced politician with close ties to the Russian President Vladimir Putin, has a history of making blustery statements. He posted on Twitter the day after Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine that any international sanctions on Russia imposed over the Ukrainian invasion would destroy the partnership between NASA and Roscosmos that keeps the space station operating and aloft. And he reaffirmed those comments last month, tweeting that normal relations between the ISS partners could only be restored after the complete and unconditional lifting of illegal sanctions. The first module of the International Space Station was boosted into orbit in 1998 and expected to last just 15 years. The space station's mission has since been extended, although maintenance problems, especially on the Russian half of the space station, have increased in recent years, and experts have warned that some of the ISS modules are getting old. The U.S. and Russia are the major partners on the ISS project, which was initiated after they cooperated on the last stages of the Mir space station in the 1990s. Historically, the U.S. has mainly been responsible for providing life support for the up to 10 people who live aboard the ISS at any one time, and Russia has mainly been responsible for keeping the ISS in orbit, with regular blasts from the engines of the Soyuz spacecraft docked there. Russia also controlled access to the IS for several years because only its Soyuz flew there after the U.S. space shuttle ended operations in 2011. But the advent of new passenger-carrying spacecraft like the SpaceX Dragon means that's no longer the case. Space experts have also noted that NASA is now testing its ability to keep the ISS in orbit with blasts from the engines of the cargo spacecraft, which is manufactured and launched by the U.S. aerospace company Northrop Grumman, meaning that Russia's involvement in the ISS might no longer be needed. Rogozin's latest comment seems to imply that Russia could soon give notice and start its pullout from the ISS project. But activities on the space station have been relatively normal since he made his initial comments, including the arrival of three Russian cosmonauts in mid-March. TASS also reported comments Rogozin had made a day earlier than his television interview, which seemed to suggest that any decision on the fate of the IS project wasn't yet final. A decision regarding the ISS future would depend to a great extent on the developing situation both in Russia and around it, he told the news agency in an interview just last week. He also said Roscosmos 
proposals for cooperation on the ISS project after 2024 had been sent to the Russian government and President Putin. And in another story on TASS dated the same day, Rogozin said that Russia would begin to test one-orbit flights to the ISS by Soyuz spacecraft in 2023 and 2024, a trip that usually requires a spacecraft to make at least four Earth orbits. That schedule, too, doesn't seem to fit well with assertions that the demise of Russia's involvement in the ISS project is imminent. Either way, Russia's already had advanced plans to build a successor space station to the ISS, according to Space.com. The first module being built by the Energia Corporation would cost at least $5 billion and could go into orbit as soon as 2025. Comcast and Charter's joint venture may signal cable's interest in being a dominant aggregator of streaming video. Comcast and Charter announced the move last week to better compete against Roku, Amazon, Samsung, and other streaming distribution companies. Comcast and Charter have started a joint venture to gain market share nationwide in streaming video distribution. The two largest U.S. cable companies may be playing a long game that could lead to a new chapter in the streaming wars. Comcast and Charter said they had developed a 50-50 venture to push Comcast's flex streaming platform into more homes across America. Comcast will license flex to Charter, giving Charter's Spectrum subscribers access to the interface. Comcast also will contribute its smart TV business and free ad-supported streaming service, Zumo, to the venture. Charter, in turn, will make an initial contribution of $900 million to fund expenses and expansion. In addition, Charter will offer flex-operated devices and associated voice-controlled remotes. Beginning in 2023, while Flex isn't a new product, the partnership nearly doubles the device's potential in-store footprint. Roku, Amazon, Apple, and Google have been making streaming aggregation devices and software for more than a decade. Samsung smart TVs come with their own built-in streaming platform. What's more, Netflix revelation in the recent weeks that it lost customers for the first time in more than a decade suggests streaming subscribers may have peaked in the United States, at least for the moment. Roku CEO and founder Anthony Woods said it had been historically difficult for companies to compete with Roku on streaming as it is Roku's sole focus. Roku is number one in big screen device streaming market share, according to the research firm Conviva, followed by Amazon's Fire TV and Samsung. Still, Comcast and Charter have a major advantage that no other streaming competitor has. That's technicians who enter the home. Nearly every person or family that moves into a new house or apartment needs to set up home broadband. Comcast and Charter are the largest home high-speed broadband connectors in the United States. Hundreds of millions of United States households already use a streaming device and may not feel a desire to switch. But Comcast and Charter service more than 200 million people in the U.S. households combined. Comcast CEO and Charter CEO can be united on a strategy 
to tell their broadband technicians to connect flex devices when they hook up homes across the country with internet. Right now, Comcast and Charter don't have many consumer perks to market with Flex. The companies can market off the user interface, but it's hard to sell consumers on something they may have never seen. Comcast's voice-controlled remote makes finding content amid a cluster of streaming services easy, but Roku and Amazon have voice-controlled remotes too. In other words, there aren't many obvious reasons for someone to use Flex over whatever device a consumer already owns. But TVs and streaming devices eventually age. Flex boxes, at least for the time being, are free for new broadband subscribers. If any industry knows the business of video distribution, obviously is the cable companies. Executives at smaller media and entertainment companies have said privately their surprise streaming bundles haven't already come to fruition. Netflix's recent share plunge and guidance that customers' losses will accelerate next quarter may be the catalyst for streaming bundles, a product that starts to resemble a smaller version of the cable bundle. If Netflix agrees to sell a bundle product, say purely hypothetically with Stars, Peacock, and Paramount Plus, for an aggregate discount, a third-party distributor will need to sell that bundle and authenticate buyers of the bundle. Apple, Roku, Google, and Amazon could all be that third-party bundler. But video distributors, Comcast and Charter, the cable companies, selling bundles of video content has always been their business. And now they're trying to put streaming devices in the homes of millions of Americans, and it's not too much of a leap to assume they want to sell customers a bundle of video subscriptions to go along with the installation of those boxes. It's only a matter of time before almost all the company's customers will get stream video rather than cable-operated TV. This won't happen overnight, though, but it makes Comcast and Charter's joint venture play, well, it makes it a lot more sense. They're playing the streaming wars long game and hoping the end result looks like cable TV version 2.0. of workers would consider quitting if asked to return to the office full-time. New numbers from Castle, that's K-A-S-T-L-E, an office security firm that tracks key card swipes in thousands of commercial buildings, show that offices in the United States' 10 largest cities are about 40% occupied, up 15% from a year earlier. Companies such as Apple and Google began requiring most employees to return to offices on a hybrid schedule in April. But companies demanding people back to the office could see more employees leaving their jobs in the coming months, according to survey findings from the ADP Research Institute published earlier this week. And return to office mandates could especially drive younger employees to quit. The report, The People at Work 2022, A Global Workforce View surveyed more than 32,000 workers in November 2021 from the United States, India, the Netherlands, and other countries. Two-thirds of the global workforce, 64%, said that they have already or would consider looking for a new job if their employer wanted them back in the office full-time. Even a few years ago, the thought of working in a hybrid arrangement was, excuse the pun, 
remote to most people. The chief economist at ADP and co-author of the report said that it's now clear that hybrid work and the desire for flexibility after two years of working from home is not going away. In fact, it's growing in momentum. But when people ask for flexibility, the emphasis is less on location and more so on when and how they work. It's not just that people want to work from their houses. They might have spotty Wi-Fi, and not everyone wants to stare at dirty dishes while they're trying to focus. But people have gotten used to having more autonomy over their work the past two years. Whether it's being able to pick up their kids from daycare or going to doctor's appointments without having to ask for time off. Resistance to returning to the office full-time is even stronger among younger employees. About 71% of 18- to 24-year-olds said that they would consider looking for another job if their company insisted on them returning to the office full-time, compared to 61% of 35- to 44-year-olds and 56% of 45- to 50-year-olds, the report found. Some workplace experts have argued that remote work is failing young employees without explaining why they're not showing up to the office in the first place. Remote work feels more natural, less intimidating for young employees. Because they're grown up with technology, it's embedded in their social fabric, their school curriculum, and their hobbies. That's why companies need to move beyond catered lunches and ping-pong tables to get young people back to the office. Instead, managers need to focus on creating an engaging office environment where employees can get valuable mentorship from higher-ups and participate in team bonding activities with their co-workers. There's a new need for companies to evolve because of this tight labor market. Employees need to feel like they're personally benefiting from waking up earlier and commuting to the office, that it's really worth it, or they'll leave. Remote work, be careful what you wish for. When it comes to remote work, be careful what you wish for, as there can be unintended consequences for employees who work remotely or whose hours are flexible. There are no co-workers around to see you sneak a few extra pieces of candy in the afternoon, which might be why more than half of pandemic remote workers report gaining weight. Our workplaces are changing in real time. The corner office is often no longer in the corner of the building. It may be in another corner of the world in the corner square on Teams or Zoom meetings. Employees are embracing that flexibility at work. Slack's Future Forum Pulse study of more than 10,000 professionals early this year found that 94% of respondents wanted flexibility on when they work and 79% wanted flexibility on where they work. But all this freedom can come with some drawbacks, too. The melding of work and home can take a toll, sometimes even from aspects of the arrangement that seems most appealing. There can be unintended consequences for employees working remotely with flexible hours, so workers angling to make their remote setups or looser hours permanent should be aware of the downsides. Remember that old expression, out of sight, out of mind? No longer do people get to rub shoulders in person with their company's leadership at the proverbial water cooler, in the cafeteria, on the elevator, 
they may only see them occasionally online, or perhaps never. That can mean that when an opportunity arises, whether it's being chosen as a project manager for a new initiative or being considered for a significant promotion, a lack of visibility can hurt one's chances. A recent study found this to be true. Remote workers were less likely to get the promotion over their on-site counterparts due to reduced face-to-face interaction with colleagues and managers. Remote employees and those who aren't working the traditional 9-to-5 can also lose out on the energizing team camaraderie that comes with consistently interacting with co-workers. This is referred to as the silo effect, in which everyone is working in their own world, and instead of having the mentality of what's best for the customer or organization, they do what's best for themselves. When the silo effect is eliminated, it enhances collaboration and creativity. But it's not just a person's advancement in the workplace that can suffer. Though each person handles remote work differently, and some have found it an outright godsend during the pandemic. The melding of work and home can take a toll, sometimes even from aspects of the arrangement that seems most appealing. Casual dress has gotten a big boost from at-home work, and the desire to work in comfortable clothing, well, it makes sense. If nobody's around to see your work office attire, why wear them? You've canceled scheduled haircuts, you put off perhaps a shower for a day or two, Research has shown that what we wear for work, however, can help us feel more accomplished. A recent survey by an online shopping site found nearly 80% of people who dress more formally said they feel productive compared to just 50% of those in sweats. And four years before the pandemic, Scientific American reported on findings that wearing formal business attire increased abstract thinking which is an important aspect of creativity and long-term strategizing. There are no co-workers around to see you sneak a few extra pieces of candy in the afternoon. A study published by Frontiers in Public Health found that 55% of respondents reported gaining weight while working remotely during the pandemic, as well as an increased snacking habit. Researchers found the weight gain was due to the deterioration of eating habits. And while it can feel like a relief not to have to make small talk every day with the office staff, Harvard Business Review found that loneliness at work can lead to health problems, reduced productivity, and burnout. You don't realize how much of an impact those water cooler talks have until you are without the water cooler and your work friends. If, of course, that fits with your personality, there have been studies showing some people feel a mental health boost working at home. So you have to know yourself well enough to know what is best for you. Similarly, if you are a social butterfly who gets energy from physically interacting with people, the daily motivation you must drum up without colleagues nearby can start to wear on you. Having flexibility and being at home, well, it sounds good. But if you aren't a self-starter who can operate solo, you can get stressed. Keeping a flexible schedule at home can also lead to putting things off and being easily distracted. And indeed, survey found nearly two in three remote workers say they had more distraction at home and missed the structure of the office. That's not to say working on-site doesn't present its own distractions, which many do report. For workers, at least having an awareness of the potential pitfalls can provide more chances to avoid them and make the most of remote work. 
presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. Work romance is not good. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about the various items in our business world and how they impact in IT. And normally, normally I wouldn't talk about this topic, and I'm still not sure that there's a whole lot in regards to IT, but somebody reached out to me, and we've had a conversation going, and they wanted to, uh, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay sort of vague here, but the conversation was less about IT, but our interactions in IT, in the in the work environment. And there was a discussion that we went on in regards to, uh, I'll just say, romance at work. Wow, romance at work. That that's a big no no. Big, huge, just amazing, big problem. All kinds of just neon lights saying, "Don't do it." And, um, and, and I, I, I cautioned them on this and sure it's, we, we sometimes as people, we, we like to think about, you know, there's, what was the, the, the book, um, years ago, the grass is always greener on the other side. Your, your neighbor's grass is, is always, it just looks more amazing than yours. And you, you have this idea in your mind that this, that everything is going to be better. My pastor, for 20 years, my pastor of 20 years, I, I've got a new pastor now because I moved. Um, you know, this is this is probably one of the biggest uh, pieces of advice. And this is kind of why I, I decided to bring this in here, even though this is less about information technology and less about computers and less about a lot of these things. And this is actually something that's applicable across the board. My my pastor, he had this idea that, you know, if you're confronted by something that is a temptation like this, if you are presented with a situation where you are going to go out on a dalliance, where you're going to leave whatever it is that you have that is good, and maybe you're struggling with it, maybe you're having problems with this, but you're going to move on you need to think about completing the fantasy. Now, let's correct this, as he always did, because that's he always used that as clickbait, yeah, verbal clickbait in a, in a sermon, complete the fantasy. He didn't say fulfill the fantasy. He didn't say move forward and do this. He didn't say, oh, yeah, go forward with that dalliance. No, he said go through and write the rest of the story in your mind before you do anything. And make sure when you write that story that you write the good and the bad and the ugly. Yes. <laughs> yes, he'd love to make Clint Eastwood references. I, I, I still loves to, I'm sure. Um so I want you to think about this, and I want you to think about this all the way along. Okay, yeah, I mean, we've been a lot of us have been working from home, but even in other environments where you are working in the office, yes, you are working with someone eight hours a day, ten hours a day, six hours a day, whatever it is that you're interacting with them. Maybe it's just one hour a day, but you have your family. 
Let's leave let's leave the negative side of that out, uh, or you know what you might think are positives. Let's leave the family aside. Let's talk about in the workplace. If you were to do something like this, you've got some issues ahead. Let's talk about those issues. And some of those issues include, yes, you're going to be in a situation where this might be somebody who's reporting to you or you're reporting to them. Are there going to be HR issues, which one of you will lose your job? Could be. What about the idea that one of you does lose your job, not because of this, but because of something else? What kind of strain does that put on the relationship? Here's another one, though. What about the idea that you have this, you know, whatever it is that goes on between the two of you that goes beyond appropriate, and then it goes bad. It goes really bad. Now, at that point, you're going to be in a situation where you are no longer just having fun, but now you're having torture because you're going to have to see that person on a regular basis, day in, day out. What, what, whatever it was that drew you together, whatever that it caused you guys to, to do whatever it is that you did is also going to be this festering boil that is just, forget that, it, it, could, it could turn in absolutely explosive. It could just turn really, really bad. So all the way along, I know this doesn't really speak to a lot of technology. It doesn't, it doesn't, and it could bleed over into the technology, you know, bad messages going back and forth, emails and stuff like that. This is an area where you don't want to go. Go through and think about everything that could go bad. Go through and think about all of the downsides. And there are far more downsides than there are upsides. I don't know this from personal experience. I haven't been through this as a personal thing, but I have seen it. And I've seen some really ugly HR discussions. Yes, I'm a big guy, so I've been included as a security protection during some of these conversations. Yeah, don't do it. As for now, this is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. The company Snap launches a $229 flying camera called Pixie. The camera called Pixie is a pocket-sized device with no controller. Instead, users tap a button to send Pixie into one of four preset flight paths. The device floats, orbits, or follows a few feet above the user to capture photos and videos, then lands in the user's palm. Snap is billing Pixie as a companion to its flagship app, Snapchat. The company said videos and pictures from flights automatically transferred into the user's Snapchat memories. Users can edit the pictures and share to any other platform. The Pixie stores up to 100 videos or 1,000 photos. It is available in the United States and France now for $229.99. Let's call it $230. The base flight pack includes the Pixie camera, bumper, and carrying strap a charging cable, and a rechargeable battery. Additional batteries are available for about $20, and a dual battery charger is available for about $50.
The company said the camera can make five to eight trips using its default flight modules on each battery recharge. Snap has ventured into gadgets in the past with products like its $380 Spectacle 3 camera glasses and its next-generation augmented reality spectacle glasses, which can superimpose computer-generated images over the user's field of vision. The company has indicated it is committed to the hardware in the long term, which could open up a new revenue stream aside from its advertising business. However, the company said in its last earnings report that revenue from the hardware today is not material. The company also announced several augmented reality features and developer updates. Snapchat now reaches 600 million monthly active users and more than 330 million active users daily. This camera, Pixie, sounds like uh, something I might want to play with. I might get one soon. An overview of America's semiconductor industry. Our society is totally reliant on microelectronic technologies. They are fundamentally integrated into every industry, government, mode of transportation, energy supply, and hospital, with bits of data and information constantly moving from one place to another. This exponential increase in their use is also causing a corresponding increase in the total energy consumption in microelectronics. Unfortunately, with the current semiconductor shortage, 169 American industries are now impacted according to estimates from Goldman Sachs. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. Our capabilities in microelectronics are eroding and under a severe threat due to both our national over-dependence on manufacturing overseas as well as our lack of politics and effort to make semiconductor production a competitive venture in the United States. Given the lead time necessary to create and scale new manufacturing infrastructure, the decisions we make now as a country will determine our leadership in the semiconductor industry, help us stay competitive and prosperous in an increasingly digital world. We must invest in sure we attract and retain the top minds that will shape our nation's future as a microelectronics leader. The share of global semiconductor manufacturing on U.S. soil has greatly eroded over the last 20 years from 37% down to 12%, and the Semiconductor Industry Association expects it will fall to 10% by 2030. The cost of manufacturing chips in the United States are rising too high to be globally competitive. The 10-year cost of a new fab, the factory where semiconductors are produced on U.S. soil is 30% higher than building the same fab in Taiwan or South Korea, and up to 50% higher than in China. These top microelectronics producing countries are subsidizing their fabs, causing the United States to become increasingly uncompetitive in this sector, which is why Asia's share of global semiconductor manufacturing will amount to 83% by 2030. Material and plant costs aside, there are high utility expenses for water and electricity. The semiconductor industry is starting to reckon with its big climate footprint. There is a little dirty secret. In the United States, a single fab, Intel 700-acre campus in Ocotillo, Arizona, produced nearly 15,000 tons of waste in the first three months of this year, 
about 60% of it hazardous. It also consumed 927 million gallons of fresh water, enough to fill about 1,400 Olympic swimming pools, and used 561 million kilowatt hours of energy. Chip manufacturing, rather than energy consumption or hardware use, accounts for most of the carbon output from electronics devices. China's microchips manufacturing expansion is already well underway. In 2019, four of the six semiconductor fabs in the world were in China, with none in the United States, and government finance fabs in China are estimated to grow from about 24 to 70 in just the next two years. China is implementing a major state-led effort to develop a domestic semiconductor industry that leads across all segments of the supply chain by 2030, with the government planning to spend $100 billion to achieve that goal. They are poaching talent from around the world, luring industry experts with exorbitant salaries and acquiring foreign intellectual property through both licit and illicit means to advance the country's capabilities. Meanwhile, the United States relies on Taiwan and South Korea for leading-edge microchips using computers, cell phones, and revolutionary technologies such as 5G, the Internet of Things, and artificial intelligence. In fact, only Taiwan's semiconductor and South Korea's Samsung produce microchips at the 5 nanometer node, the most advanced processing nodes that exist today. The semiconductor industry also depends on a highly skilled workforce which the United States is failing to cultivate domestically. Foreign students dominate U.S. semiconductor-related graduate programs, accounting for more than two-thirds of graduate degrees in electrical, electronics, and communications engineering from American education institutions in 2019. The guiding principle that has allowed the semiconductor industry to flourish for half a century, Moore's Law, appears to be leveling off. Moore's Law states that the number of transistors in an integrated circuit will double within two years, making semiconductors smaller, faster, and cheaper. This increased power and decreased cost has revolutionized entire industries, becoming fundamental to human progress. Major innovations built on new scientific understanding will be required to sustain the same relentless advances in computing beyond these limits. All these factors add up to a fragile ecosystem. The global economy knows it must innovate with new microchip architectures, materials, packaging methods, algorithms, and software, which will require more investment in R&D and engineering. How does the U.S. put itself in a strong position for semiconductor manufacturing to connect R&D to the economic benefits these new innovations could generate without depending on other nations? Well, for the United States to maintain competitiveness today and tomorrow, we need to boost investment in R&D and engineering. Alongside a stronger position in manufacturing, we need a multi-pronged whole-of-nation strategy to ensure domestic access to all segments of the supply chain, increase R&D investment, and increase the talent pipeline of U.S. citizens in order to build our semiconductor ecosystem. When will this semiconductor shortage end? Some say by the end of this year, but realistically, it's more like two, three years from now.
presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston, and they're going to talk about Mother's Day. Marty Winston joins me now here on Mother's Day weekend. Uh, you know, in case this is news to you, get something for your mom for tomorrow. Uh, of course, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. You know, tech though. I'm I'm, I'm thinking here, tech. What do you? I, I mean, okay. My mom is fascinated by by the the iPhone, but that's it in tech I these days. I think if you took a look broadly at moms yeah. today and their interface with tech, yeah. It's just a lucky thing that they're well into the cell phone, smartphone era, because without smartphones, I don't know that their tech would go beyond blenders. They don't. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not trying to characterize them in any negative way, but they moms are a lot less vulnerable to falling in love with the tech for tech's sake than, than dads have ever been. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that because, OK, so my mom, if we go back in time. Let's 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 work back. You know, current times. Yes, iPhone. It's an amazing thing. She struggles with some of the some of the nuances. Uh, hey, I discovered this. You know, okay, that's been around since iPhone has been around. Uh, but she's she's run Windows, and she thinks you know Windows ninety five was the best thing for Windows, and nothing. There was no reason for anything after Windows ninety five, uh, which. Okay, there's some there's some validity at, at times to that, <laughs> but actually, so if we go back before then, though, she actually worked. Um, I, I, I will tell you, I, I think I can say this. I I think I can say that she worked for Strategic Air Command, uh, which is, I mean, that's the Air Force. That's you know, big huge bomber wings out of Southern California, uh, uh and if, Texas. It, 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 in this case, it was it, it was yeah. Southern California, the March Air Force Base, the most photographed Air Force Base in the world. Uh, it, it, we lived right around the corner from there. Uh, so, uh, so she actually, at one point in time, she showed me her. It, it was a typewriter. For for all I knew, it was a, it was an IBM Selectric typewriter, but there was something more behind it. She she typed it. She, no, no, just a moment. IBM's electric typewriter, everybody, was an electric typewriter that allows <laughs> you to correct your typing. Now, this is real-time key to ball to paper. Yes, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So when we think of, you know, typewriters today, this is, this is pre-word processor days. <laughs> Although, actually, at that point in time, the she had, because she worked for, she worked for a general. And uh, she had to store all of this stuff electronically and print it out. So she showed me what was essentially a very, 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 very primitive version of a word processor. And that and was exciting. That was one. And a macro. Yes. Yes. So, I mean, this is back. This is back right around the time that I took my first computer course, which was on. <laughs> this is aging me. Commodore VIC-20. Wow. Uh, yes. <laughs> you know what I'm reminded of? Yeah. There was an, an episode of The Honeymooners with uh, Jackie Gleason. Yes. Where he and his wife are arguing, and yeah, it's all about men versus women. And then he said, where would this country be without George Washington? And she said, yeah, but where would George Washington be without his mother? <laughs> very true so you know i have to give credit to my mom 
for for instilling a fascination in tech, in science fiction, in a lot of these different areas. She took me to uh, Star Trek uh, 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 Wrath of Khan. Wow. Uh, uh, And, you know, that was and she she told me at that time that she and I had no idea. My grandparents had some hand in raising me as well. Uh, But when we went to the movie, she said she had watched all of the original Star Trek episodes when they first aired. And she was I mean, yeah, that would be a tracker. Yeah, definitely. Trekkie. Trekker is the next generation. Oh, Trekkie, Trekkie is the old series. Trekker is the next generation. Oh, hey. <laughs> what's, what, what's now? A truck stop? Uh, close to it. Oh, man. Oh, uh, I, I haven't, I, you know, I haven't caught up on, on all of the recent ones. Uh, but, you know, yeah, you, you got a point there. Well, well you, the, without going too far into the past or the future, I think there's something yeah. we both want to say. Happy Mother's Day to the moms out there, all of you. Yeah. Now, did your mom contribute to your fascination with tech in any way? Um. <laughs> oh, oh, that's a no. <laughs> to see Marty speechless is is quite a quite an interesting thing there. Oh man! Now, uh, so what about your wife? Did she help? I, I know my wife. My wife helped out with instilling a lot of fascination in in tech into our son, uh, and uh, she is actually also a trekker and a let trekkie. Me, let me say, my yeah. wife has been involved with tech for a very long time and yeah. has overall disliked most of it. And <laughs> if we were in retrospect to go back to what she was not liking, yeah, we would agree with her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, remember how stupid the user interfaces were? Remember how primitive it was? Remember how confusing? More, more confusing and, and backwards than Windows 11? <laughs> There's my obligatory dig at Windows <laughs> 11. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 look, she, she had an intuition for what makes sense and what doesn't. Yeah. And that's beyond a lot of what came out of the computer industry for the first 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. So, yeah, she was. Yeah. So, you know, I'm sorry. Moms, we're celebrating you. Yes. Thank you very much. You you did a wonderful job with, well, with most of us. That that's and for, Yeah. And, and listen, for the rest of you, guys, whatever you're going to buy, jack it up a couple of notches, make it a special day. Mom's not going to be there forever. Very true. This is Benjamin Rockwell. That's Marty Winston. Be good to your mom. Thank you, Ben, and thank you, Marty. Sunday, May 8th, is Mother's Day. We honor our mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, godmother, and let's not forget, our mother-in-law. The 46th Annual Trenton Computer Festival was held Saturday, March 19th. There were over 50 talks on 10 concurrent tracks. All the sessions were recorded. They are now available and free for download at tcf-nj.org and the main page has hyperlinks that will direct you to the portal site. Public Service Announcements Computer Club Meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut Tri-State Region Since most club meetings are online, 
you are most welcome to attend any of the online meetings. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, May the 6th. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Website is acgnj.org. The Westchester PC Users Group will have a presentation, Podcasting with Robert Miller. Thursday, May the 5th, meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is wpcug.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, May the 6th, meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, website is limac.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, May the 10th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., and they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, located at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. And to confirm, call 347-278-7320. The Brookdale Computer Users Group will have a presentation on Complete Robocore Defense, Thursday, May the 26th. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m., virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is bcug.com. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Joe King, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.